Nonstop Rock Talk with Tyson Bryden. Welcome to Nonstop Rock Talk. This is your host, Tyson Bryden. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Andy Curran. Now, many of you may know Andy from Coney Hatch or possibly as a solo artist, also with Soho 69 and Caramel. Andy, welcome, man. How's it going? Tyson, uh, it's going really well, and thank you for having me on, buddy. It's um, We were just talking about how nice it was here in Toronto today, so it's nice to get some sunshine, right? Yeah, it's been, it was an awesome day. I didn't anticipate it to be so nice today, so it was good. We should be on the golf course, both of us, right now. Exactly, I agree. Now, before we get talking rock, I must ask, ask about your beloved Chicago Blackhawks. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, how are they making out this season? Okay. So I love talking hockey. I love that you started off with hockey because it's um, one of my big, big passions. And if I was to be really truthful, probably like a million other Canadian uh, boys and girls, I I was convinced I was going to go to the NHL. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm that I'm going to be a professional hockey player. Anyway, uh, quickly learned that I was far too skinny. Um, and there was a lot better players up there than I, but, uh, I can proudly tell you, I still, um, pre COVID, I was skating three times a week and, you know, played hockey all the way through right up into high school. When I went to Dallas Al, I played for the, um, the junior and senior team there and then put together a little rock and roll all-star team that had Larry Gowan and the Gowan brothers on it and the boys from Brighton Rock and a couple guys from Coney and, um, and, you know, some guys from City TV and Live Nation. So hockey somehow seems to weave its way into my life um, in, in many areas. But the Blackhawks this year, to answer your question, I, I'm, I must admit, as a hockey fan um, and watching hockey in COVID, it's been sort of tough to get excited about it because it felt kind of fake to me. There was no, there was no you know, fans in the, in, in the stands. And I was just like, how are these players getting excited or up for the game? And, um, you know, because we're all, all of us are in the same boat. It gets pretty boring at home just watching Netflix and stuff. So I was like, screw it, man. The hockey season's on. I got the NHL channel and I've been, I've pretty much watched every single Blackhawk game um, last season and this season and um, was excited to see him beat Edmonton and that sort of wild card, card round. But, you know, since, since Coach Quindle, um was fired and, you know, and Corey Crawford and the whole, and, and losing Crawford and Leonard, um, the goaltending was a huge problem. And I was like, this is a joke. And with all due respect to Subban, he's not a starting goaltender. And luckily for us, the, their young rookie goaltender, Kevin Lankin, and has been playing awesome. And it's one of the bright spots of the Hawks. Um, not having Kays has been really odd to see that team play after all these years with that Jonathan Taze on the ice. But I think Patrick Kane has stepped up and, uh, um, you know, you can see him he's like fourth or fifth in the scoring in the league. So he's kind of leading the charge, but um, Kirby Doc is great to have him back and, and DeBrink is having an amazing season. And I think they, they just might sneak in by the skin of their teeth into a playoff spot. Cool. Um, a few years ago, I actually, we went to a festival in Illinois called Rock and Skull. Okay. And, and I said to my wife, I was like, you know what? We should, uh, we should leave early and go into Chicago because Chicago was only about, it was in Pekin, Illinois. So it was about an hour and 45 minutes and I actually got to go see a Blackhawks game and it was awesome. 
Oh man, yeah, going to the United Center, uh, I've I've, um, I've been spoiled because, and it's a very long story that starts off with Pat Stapleton's son, Mike Stapleton, um, and and. I, I'm trying to think how or when. I, I, I actually, you know what? Very quick story. I'll tell you because this kind of combines hockey and rock and roll. Yeah. So, um, in when, when I had my solo band going, we did a lot of stuff with Labats. And Labats, um, you know, at one point they were so generous uh, in, in the in the sort of in the framing it up like tour support. They basically said, "Hey, Andy, you know, we know you're out on the road with Kim Mitchell." Um, we'd like to sort of sponsor you and it means that you have to wear some Labatt's blue swag. You got to, um, put a banner in your dressing room, um, maybe wear some clothes, tell people some nice things about Labatt's and, and you're only allowed to drink Labatt's blue beer. And we're going to, we're going to give you like a cash donation towards it. And it kept me on the road for about 18 months, right? We're literally, um, and I remember thanking them the year that I won the Juno Awards, uh, my Juno Award, and I, th- and I said, without Labatt, we wouldn't have um, been able to, to stay on the road this long. And people were like, oh, my God, I can't believe you thanked a brewery at, at the Juno Awards. And I was like, well, why wouldn't I, right? Yeah. So I, I struck up a really good friendship with a guy by the name of Ken Barrett. And Ken was one of the senior brand managers there, and he knew I was a Blackhawk fan. He said, hey, do you want to come to a game, a Blackhawk game? Uh, we've got really good seats. And I was like, hell yeah, I do. So we went to the game. And he said, do you have time for a drink after the game? I said, absolutely. He goes, a couple of my friends are just around the corner. And this was when the Leafs were playing at Maple Leaf Gardens. So we went around the corner to the hotel. I can't remember the name of it. It backed on to, to Wood Street on the back of the, uh, the arena there. And we walked into this bar, this private bar, and the entire Chicago Blackhawks team are in there. Every single one of them after the game. So Ken Derrick knew them all. And Doug Wilson walks up to me and goes, hey, I understand you're a Blackhawks fan. I've got a present for you. And he gives me this signed, framed photo to the world's biggest Blackhawk fan, Andy Kern. And so I'm hobnobbing with, you know, with him and Chelios and Eddie Belfour and uh, Ronick was there and Steve Larmer. And um, I ended up striking up a friendship with Steve and keeping in touch with him to this day. But Mike Stapleton does a beeline over towards me. And for those of you who don't know who Mike Stapleton is, his father was Pat Stapleton, and he was on Team Canada, and he was the um, captain of the Chicago Blackhawks during the 70s with Hull and Makita and Esposito and all those guys. So Mike, Mike Stapleton does a beeline over towards me and, start, and says, oh, dude, I love, your, I love your band, man. I've seen your band so many times. And he starts basically saying that he's a fan of, uh, wow. of, of So this whole thing leads into my story about the United Center. So I had been to games at the old Chicago Stadium. When we, when Tony Hatch was on the road, Carl Dixon and I would often, on a day off, if we were in Pittsburgh, we'd go to the Civic Arena. Um, we've seen games at Joe Louis. Um, and any time we had a day off, we would buy a ticket. So Carl and I and a couple of the guys on the crew went to the, a game at the old Chicago Stadium. But when it came time for the, what I call the, the, the mini dynasty, when, when the Hawks won three Stanley Cups in the period of, of a very short time, um, 
I, through Mike Stapleton, I met the um, equipment manager and the trainer. And then next thing I know, when Rush is on tour and I'm working with Rush, I'm inviting those guys to Rush gigs and Seabrook's coming out and, uh, wow. and you know, and, and Dave Bolin and all these guys. So now I'm having a love-in with the Blackhawks and I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm hobnobbing with, the, with the, the, the guys who work for them, some of the guys on the team. So when it came time for the playoffs... I said to them, can you get me, when the Hawks were in the finals every year for three years in a row, I went to game five and got to see, um, you know, they didn't win the Stanley Cup, but it's as close to you can get as winning the Cup. But as you would attest to, because you've been to the United Center, the place is off the hook. What an atmosphere to see a game there. And for me, the three years the Hawks won the Stanley Cup playoffs, um, not only did I get to go to the games, but I was invited up into the ambassador suite where, where Tony Esposito, Sam Makita, Denny Savard, Bobby Hall are all hanging up there drinking. And I'm wearing this hawk sweater that my uh, friend got made and it's got 21 on one arm, nine on the other arm and 35 on the back. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not even, I'm not even lying. All at the same time, Tony Esposito's wife comes up and goes, Tony, look at Andy's sweater here. Look at this. Come and sign it. She's got a Sharpie. So it was one of these moments, dude, where I was like, what is going on here? I have Pat, I've got Bobby Hall, Stan Makita, Tony Esposito, and Danny Savard signing my sweater at a Blackhawks playoff game. It was, it was surreal. That it was unbelievable. That is so awesome. Yeah, so that's a good Blackhawk story. That's I know I've really, I burned up a lot of time talking about well, the Hawks. That's good, that, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I often say that, and, and sometimes I'll say, but yeah, it's rock talk, but if we get on to sports, because I'm such a big sports guy, I have no issue with that, because I can talk sports yeah. forever as well. So. Oh, my God. It, it's become an obsession. I've got far too much um, Blackhawk stuff at home, so much so that I, I actually donated some to the Hockey Hall of Fame this year, because um, I just thought, somebody's got to enjoy this stuff, and I get lots of pres presents from my friends who will come and go, hey, Andy, I got you another Blackhawks cap, and, I, and when they leave, little do they know, I've got like 30 Blackhawk caps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember. I think it was was it on the Power Hour, but it was on Much Music. One, you were on one day, and was it Blackhawks hockey cards or something that you you had? Or I don't yeah. know if you recall okay. that. Well, I I do. Um... For, for a while, like as as a youngster, I my brothers and I collected hockey cards and SO power players and all those things, right? But what I started doing, to, um, Tyson, when 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 I started to get to be obsessed with the Hawks, yeah. I would trade every single one of my cards for a Blackhawk card. So my hockey card collection is all Blackhawks. So you're probably so right. Cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Now. Before we get into things of the past, I'm curious to let's switch over to music. Yeah. What's happening musically for you these days? Of course, we're in COVID, but I mean, yeah. even before that, and I know you were invo involved with the Alma Combo there for a, a little bit. I don't know if you're still doing that. What, what are yeah. you up to? Well, m musically, um, the timing is quite good for me to tell you that um, 
anybody who's familiar with Coney Hatch would know that we played, we actually played a live stream show at the Alma Combo, but we actually filmed and recorded it. So um, one of the things that we offered someone when they bought a ticket for that show to, to see it, um, a live stream, you could, uh, you could basically build a bundle and say, yes, I would like um, a version of the vinyl when you finished it. And so a lot of people pre-ordered the vinyl copy of, of Coney Hatch Live at, at the Elma Combo. And we were, we were pretty psyched about doing that because we never had a live record. Yeah. So um, literally uh, last week we finished, and, and we did this really bootleg. When I say we, the entire band was involved. So um, we, got the, we got the audio from the, from the show. And then my friend and Juno Award uh, winning engineer mixer, Vic Florencia, mixed the record for us. And then we worked with our merchandising company and online on the Coney Hatch website, you can uh, order or pre-order a double album of Coney Hatch live at the Elma Combo. And, and, and the set list is what we like to say are sort of mini best of, like we covered all four albums. And... Um, what we decided to do in terms of packaging was we wanted to treat it a bit like a bootleg because we only did 300 copies of this thing. So we, um, uh, what we did was we got white covers. We had a rubber stamper that every cover was individually stamped. And so your copy would be different from mine um, because the, the stamp might be in a completely different area. And um, every, every, so uh, out of the 300, we signed uh, the band autographed 100 of them. So you'll, you'll love how this is, this reminded me of the Killer Dwarves video when they were putting, putting this stuff on a clothesline, right? Yeah. So, so the the blank white covers arrived to my house in Burlington. I sign 100 of them. I put them in a box. I ship them up to Dave Ketchum in Thunder Bay. He signs 100 of them. He puts them in a box, sends them to Halliburton. Carl Dixon signs 100 of them and then drives them to Toronto and Sean Kelly signs a hundred of them. They send them back to me. My daughter and I have this little sweatshop going in the basement. We got some friends, we got some tequila and we start stamping the Coney Hatch logo on all of them. Right. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And, and they all have a little, um, like we kind of borrowed the idea from the cars. If anybody's a, is a uh, album collector out there, they'll they, you can find a Cars bootleg live at the Elma Combo, and it's a plain white cover with a stamp that says "The Cars Live at the Elma Combo." And then the insert is really just a, a little eight by ten sheet that has a picture of the band, has the set list, says the date. Um, so it's it's very much like I can guarantee anybody who who bought this thing that record passed through every single member of Coney Hatch's hands was signed and then it's going to be mailed out. And we just started making a CD version of it. So that, that's one of the projects that, that is, is now ready and is being shipped out. And I want to, for anybody that's listening, I want to thank them for their patience because that was back in October and due to COVID, they're only shipping right now. So everybody was, was quite patient with us. We got a few emails going, where the heck's my, where the heck's my album? I paid for it. Right. Um, so it's all shipped out, but while that was happening, um, Carl, Dave, and I, um, and Steve Shelsky, when we had recorded Coney Hatch 4, we we actually recorded um, a couple extra songs, and but they were only bass and drums. And when COVID hit, Carl and I started talking about, well, you know, we should finish these. We should finish those two songs. Um, so we called up Sean Kelly and asked him if he'd be interested in finishing them with us, and he and he was over the moon. So again, we went in the studio with Vic Florencia, and we. 
finished off two brand new songs, um, which we're figuring out right now, uh, Tyson, whether we're going to add them to a live in Germany, which we recorded uh, a live show in Germany about a year and a half ago, and maybe bundle it with that, or maybe, because we're talking to a couple of different labels, one of them is in Los Angeles, and they might want to bundle all of this stuff together that I told you about, yeah. and put, put together a new Coney Hatch record. So, um, so that's on the Coney Hatch front, and then um, there's another really interesting project that I'm involved in, um, where I had met a young female uh, singer-songwriter, um, vocalist. Her name is Maya Wynn, and she's from Portland, Oregon, and she's about 24 years old. And um, it's, it's too long of a story to tell you how I was connected with her, but I have a very close friend who's also a great engineer and a guitar player, and his name is Alf Annabellini. And Alf, um, good, good Irish Catholic name there. And anyway, he... Uh, <laughs> He, um, he and I started working on material that is nothing like Coney Hatch and nothing like any of the material that I've ever written. Um, I'm a big fan of bands like Massive Attack and Thievery Corporation, which is very much like ambient. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of trippy elements to it, a lot of drum loops, a very atmospheric. It's kind of chilled, but it can get dark. Um, it can get dark, especially Massive Attack. When, when you, if you listen to it, you can say, wow, that song sounds a bit heavy, but it's not heavy in the guitar crushing you know heavy metal sounds but it's actually got very dark moody feeling and so i the three of us alf maya and myself started working on some songs remotely sending them back and forth and one day i just happened to be talking to alex lifeson because i still have a very long friendship with getty and alex and still work with them in in certain capacities and alex said to me hey dude what are you up to like i know you've got work stuff on and um, but I know you've got a recording studio at home and, and what are you up to? So I told him about this project with Maya and Alf and he said, Oh man, that sounds really interesting. Would you send that to me? I'd like to hear a couple of those songs. So I did, I emailed him a couple MP3s and literally within half an hour, he called me back and said, I love this. I want to play guitar on it. And I, I honestly was speechless because you're talking to a guy. That's amazing. Yeah, it was like, what what world am I living in here? Alex Lyson just said that he wants to, um, you know, work on these songs and be part of this project. So to put things into perspective, a guy that grew up in Mississauga, I'm a, I'm a music fan first. I love, love music, all, all types of it. And, you know, my walls were covered in pictures of Rush and Ted Nugent and Peter Frampton and Judas Priest and you name it, all the bands that I grew up with I loved. I went to Maple Leaf Gardens so many um, New Year's Eves in a row to see to see Rush in Massey Hall. I was there at All the Worlds of Stage when they recorded that. So fast forward when I started working at Anthem Records and I was there, you know, A&R guy and working with them. That alone was surreal to be working with them, but we never, ever spoke about creative working together it was always andy's at the label he's part of the management and there's rush and we never we even spoke about my career um they remembered when my solo band uh, i opened up for those guys on the on the roll of bones tour but at no point did they ever say hey do you want to do some write some music with me it was like it just wasn't it was a no-go zone right so fast forward for him to say that, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? What's, what's in the drinking water? Like, something's going on, right? So we've completed um, seven songs. 
We are figuring out what we're going to do with that um, project. Uh, the project name is Envy of None. And um, we're just, like I said, we're just in the, we're just trying to figure out, well, the bird is going to leave the nest. The material's pretty much finished and we got to figure out, are we going to talk to a couple of our label friends? Are we just going to put it up on Spotify and Amazon and Apple and just get it out there? Um, so TBD on that, but that's a long-winded answer to tell you that's kind of go, what's going on with me musically right now at the moment. That's awesome. Alex Anderson. Yeah. Wow. I know. That's, yeah. That's amazing. Now, now getting back to that, I had to ask about that bootleg, the out live at the Alma Combo. Is it sold out? Um, I think the signed copies are are pretty close to being sold out right now. I know, I know, like there was a glitch. Uh, our merch guy told me that there was a glitch and that the website uh, store was down for a little while. But I'm fairly certain there's still some more signed copies. Okay. And then we're we're working with um, a company in Burlington called Isotope Distribution, and there they actually went out to a bunch of sort of mom and pop record stores and said, "Are you guys interested in the Live Coney Hatch uh, kind of bootleg vibe?" And, and so next thing you know, they took a bunch of orders from uh, retail stores. So to answer your question, I, I'm, I'm going to estimate that there might be maybe 20 copies left that of the signed version. But okay. if you miss if you miss out on it, you, you could potentially go to a record store, um, you know, in June or, and be able to pick this up. OK, good to know, because I'm going to yeah. I'm, I'm going to go on and, and look it up. It's funny. I just I just pulled out. Uh, two of my Coney Hatch albums. Yeah. Um, and I was looking at this. I got these probably late 90s. So records were out, right? And yeah. I got them at a garage sale or at a at a flea market or something. And I was looking at this at, at out of hand and it was it cost me $2. Love it. Uh, I know, right? They were, they, it's amazing how vinyl... It just was so, uh, it was just like, I can remember hearing labels were, were just destroying them and, and because nobody was buying them and CDs are, are quickly went that way too. But people, um, there's a whole tactile thing and, and, you know, I think you and I can share stories about going to record stores and flipping through and looking. Yep. Sometimes I, I, sometimes I used to buy a record just for the, for the album artwork. Yep. I didn't even, I didn't even care. I was yep. just, Oh, this looks like a cool cover. Right. Yep. Um, so it's amazing that it's come back in vogue. And I just noticed your t-shirt, by the way, that's an awesome t-shirt. One of my, yeah. Yeah. One of my all time favorite bands. Big fan. I just, I just got, uh, the album from a couple, I think two albums ago, and I can't, I always forget the name. It's got Boom and Zoom on it. Fantastic album. I just got that last week and love it. It sounds great. I just got the vinyl of it, right? I had the CD, but I found, yeah. it, I found it on Amazon. I'm always buying stuff, which actually leads me to my next point. Um, I was on Facebook Marketplace probably three weeks ago, and there was a guy selling vinyl. So one was Hanoi Rocks, and then there was two Kickaxe albums in there. So I brought it home that night, put on Welcome to the Club, like you're supposed to do when you play an album. I was reading the liner notes, and lo and behold, there is your name. <laughs> you had contributed to the band's great, which I think is a good version of the Beatles, a little help for my friends. And tell me about, the, what do you recall from that? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, um, because somebody recently posted a photo um, on 
Facebook, and then I think I ended up sharing it because I had, um, you know, my memory is is like I've got a good memory for certain things, and then it, it'll take something like a conversation like this where you'll say, "Hey, dude, remember when you were when you when you um, were in the Metalworks studio with Kickaxe?" And I'll be like, "Oh yeah, I completely forgot that, right?" <laughs> but yeah. um, but we ran into Kickaxe when we were touring in Cody Hatch and they were all really, really cool guys. And I, and, um, you know, there's, there's sometimes that lay that sort of crossover when you were, when we were coming into a town and we were just about to play two or three nights at a venue. And maybe there was a case where kickaxe were already at the venue in the, in the front end of the week. And we were coming into the back end and inevitably there ends up being a party in somebody's room. And then next thing you know, you've struck up a friendship with the guys in Helix or Kickaxe or yeah. um, Teenage Head. We always partied with the guys in Teenage Head, had so much fun with them, right? But the, so the Kickaxe guys was, was an invitation to come. And, you know, I think at that time I might have had my solo record out. So I was getting a lot of airplay. Um, I remember Lee Aaron being there. And I remember um, the girls from Toronto. Um, I'm trying, maybe Alfie's Apocosta. So I think they kind of, they did a bit of a short list of who, the who's who or who are being played on much music at the moment. And, um, I lived in Mississauga, so I was like, this is five minutes from my house. I'm going to go over and see my friends. So, yeah. And it was, it was a bit like the, we are the world thing. Like there's a ton of guys in the back and it wasn't like I was featured. Like I, I'm pretty sure, you know, Lee Aaron had a couple feature lines. I was just happy to hang out and drink beers and see the guys. That's cool. That's a cool tune. I hadn't heard it in years either, and I hadn't listened to that song. I remember the video on on Much, of course, and I think Lee Aaron might be in it. I can't remember. It's been so long since I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, and I have a vivid memory of seeing Kickaxe and their lead singer, who's uh, excuse me, his name escapes me. But anyway, he yeah, he, yeah, he always he never wore any he never wore any shoes on stage. He always he was bare, he was barefoot all the time, That's including right. in the studio, right? That's right, and I remember that first video, seeing that on Toronto Rocks, with yeah. and it was on the road to rock, and thinking, oh man, because I I was how old would I have been, ten or eleven, and I was yeah. watching Midweek Metal Mania on Toronto Rocks, and that video came on, and it was such a cool video, and they they it had the um, it was they kind of base it around like the Mozart thing or a composer. I can't. I haven't seen it in years, so I can't exactly remember the whole thing. But it was really cool. You know, I, I remember. I think I said to George, like, "Man, you got big balls, buddy," because I certainly would not be going on stage with without any shoes on. Because yeah. you know, half the half the places we played, there was broken glass everywhere, and you know, these stages had a million bands on them, and some of them were wood, some of them were concrete. So God knows what what happened to his feet. Well, you'll have to ask him one day if you get him on. Yeah, hopefully I will get him on because I was a, a big fan of them as well. Now, moving towards your self-titled solo release on Alert Records, I have a bit of a story about this. Um, it's going back to around the time the album was out. I think it was about 15 or 16. And my buddy's dad took us to Speedorama in Toronto on the okay. exhibition grams. And uh, I had the solo album and I was loving it. I think I bought the single first for License to Love and then I bought the, bought the tape. So anyways, well, it turned out you were there doing a signing or something. And uh, we were kind of in awe because we we were from 
a smaller town. Like we were from Orono, Ontario, which is okay. Uh, sure. So I, yep. So anyway, so we we drove to Speedorama and. So we got to meet you and we chatted for a second and it's funny, you signed my buddy's, ja- his jean jacket. Well, we had a friend who was an artist and believe it or not, where the signature one, he got him to do the logo off the album on this jean jacket. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it looked, and he did it. It was like, it looked exactly like it. It was just really cool. And I, I'm not sure if he still has it. I'm going to have to ask him, but uh we were That's we were cool. we were actually very big fans and we were like and you you got you were so nice to us and we were just you know these young kids and everything and it's, <laughs> it still stands out in my mind well you know and and there you go there's a perfect example of you just planting the scene with speedorama like i'd totally forgotten even being there and um you know if 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 you have a computer and your computer's running slow and you got to clean the cache out to get to clear it up, that's often what happens to me. And sadly, some of these memories have gone. And, um, and, and then someone will say, uh, oh, yeah, like remember Speedorama? And then boom, I'll just have to pull it out from the hard drive. But I do remember being there. And, you know, that particular period was, was a, listen, that, I, it was a scary concept to leave Coney Hatch and start my own band again, just like literally starting over again. And the rewards that, you know, that instantly thank, thank God for me, you know, like we got a lot of airplay, much music was all over a couple videos. We toured for, um, like I said, 18 or 19 months. Labatt's was on board. Um, Got invited out to do to do some dates with Rush. We toured with Rick Emmett in Haywire. Um, we were constantly touring. Had a couple Juno nominations and, and actually won one. So, you know, for me, that was a, a real confidence builder because you got a picture that I'd been in Coney Hatch and shared the, the duties with three other guys, and all of a sudden now I'm out of my own um, and. That was after a lot of failed attempts to try to replace Carl Dixon. Um, we had Kevin Kevin uh, Labrie or James Labrie, as he's now called. He he was in Coney Hatch for about five minutes, and, I didn't know him. and yeah, and then Phil Phil Nero from Talis was in Coney Hatch for about five minutes, and then and and our managers were like, no, 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 this isn't good. That lineup's not good, and I was like. That's it. I'm I'm done with Coney. I'm yeah. putting Coney away, and um, never say never. Of course, we've done like a, a billion reunion tours, like like Spinal Tap or something. But I'm still friends with those guys. But that was a really important time for me because the other thing that a lot of people don't know, and I'll share the story with you, is um, initially I went back to my old roots and I asked Kim Mitchell to produce that record because I loved working with Kim at Quest in Oshawa and, and on the first Coney Hatch record. Long story short, it didn't, it, it, we got off to the start where we recorded bed tracks with Kim and then Kim got really, really busy and couldn't finish the record with me. So I remember vividly calling Tom Barry, the, the label president, and saying, okay, this isn't working out. Like Kim's, Kim's not available and he's got a lot going on. Um, and he said, oh, we got to find another producer, man. Like we got to finish this record. And I said, I want to produce it. And he said, okay, I'll let, I'm going to, he said, before I tell you, yes, you can produce a whole album, let's just do a couple songs and see how it goes. So that exercise really, um, 
up to my game where not only was I doing my solo project and, and composing and writing the music, I was actually producing the record too or co-producing it. And um, I really love being in the studio. And from that point on, I've had my hands in every single record because I love it so much. I've produced um, lots of indie bands and um, written music for TSN and Insight Sports and stuff. And um, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to fiddling around in studios. It's one of my, I, I like playing live as well, but, but for anybody who's, you know, ever tinkered around in the studio. My, my daughters, that's, they're saying, oh, dad's in the studio again, tinkering, right? But it's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a real passion of mine. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, and going back to that Speedorama thing, another funny story about it was, we took a photo with you. So this was back in the days when you had to get the film developed. So we get it done, get it back. His dad took the photo, lo and behold, I'm hardly even in the picture. Oh, he t- his dad totally cut me out of the picture, and we still joke about it to this day. <laughs> well, we'll have to update your photo when I have one of our next shows, bro. That's and, we'll, and, and we'll Photoshop it back in. That was then. This is now. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Now, now getting to the album, like you're you're talking about the production was was there a lot of interest when you were shopping for a deal? Um, are you talking specifically about what I like to call the No Tattoos record, the yes. solo record? Yeah, yeah. So the, here, here's the, here's how the process went. Um, again, just trying to take a leap of faith and, and literally having no man. I left Coney Hatch, so I really didn't have a manager. I didn't really have a band. I reached out to some friends of mine. Um, there was a studio uh, in, in Scarborough, actually, called uh, Studio B, and a friend of mine, Bill Petrie, worked there. And I just thought, what the hell? I'm, you know, I'm going to spend a couple of grand, and I'm going to go in and do some songs on my own and see how they turn out. So I went in and I did some demos, very similar to the path that Coney Hatch took, but Kim will produce those demos that eventually got us a deal. And when I finished about four or five songs, um, Tom Barry, who had been the A&R guy at Anthem Records, had left Anthem Records and started Alert Records, and Kim Mitchell was on the label. And I thought to myself, wow, well, maybe, you know, maybe the first guy I should play it for is Tom Barry. Like, that that's a... You know, I'm not going to have to go out and and make a million copies of this and send it to all these labels or hire a lawyer. And, and so I started with Tom and he loved it immediately. He was like, dude, this is amazing. Like, we got to do a record together. Let's go. And so, again, uh, like, I, I really consider myself lucky. You know, it's a lightning strike moment when... And when Pai Dubois came to see us at the Gasworks and told Kim about us, and next thing you know, we're in the studio with Kim Mitchell. Like those things don't happen every day. Those are these are pivotal moments in an artist's career where they, where you go, oh my God, Curran's got horseshoes up his ass because I do. You know, like I I, I continually get these chances and these opportunities. So. Uh, luckily for me, I played it for one person after I finished the demos in the industry, and that was Tom Barry, and he said, I'll do a deal with you in a heartbeat. Let's go. Wow. Well, I mean, I've been listening, like, leading up to her interview. I, I mean, I threw, I've been listening to it quite a bit again, and I hadn't for, for quite a while. And I think I like it more now than I did back then, and I really liked it back then. Wow. Well, that's that's very cool. I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'm working on with Tom right now, and I'll give you an exclusive on this, is that if everything comes together, 
Um, there was an anniversary of that record last year. That's how long ago it was. I believe I want to say 30 years ago. Like I'm really aging myself here, right? But yeah. uh, 20, 2019 was the 30th anniversary of it. And, and because of COVID, we kind of shelved this plan. But I asked Tom if I could get access to those original master tapes and actually remaster them. I've got some demos from that period, and I've got some live recordings of that time when when that band was together. And like sort of from uh, 1991 to 1994-ish. And I said... Um, Let's just do what, uh, let's just call this, uh, you know, an anniversary deluxe edition, and I'm going to add some stuff to it. And so literally at this moment, Tom and I are going back and forth to try to fine tune the, the, the terms of that deal. But if, if everything works out well, the, on, um, the first thing we would do is we would re- release it on, on DSPs, the digital service providers. So it would be up on Spotify, Apple, I, I, you know, um, Amazon, all of that kind of stuff. And, and there would be, like, as I said, remastered versions of License to Love, No Tattoos, Let Go, Nickels and Dimes, all those tracks, and then some other stuff that didn't make the record. So, um, you know, if anybody's following me or not following me on Instagram, I'll be putting up news if that deal happens. But that's what I'm working on as the next thing. That's awesome. Now, was that album on vinyl originally? It, it, it was. It's hard to find. And, and we are talking about doing physical copies. If if the reception is good enough, yeah. um, Tyson, like, we'll probably do some limited physical copies of what I call the anniversary, uh, the anniversary reissue, right? Yeah, I try to look it up on Discogs because that's usually where I buy if I'm looking for something vintage that I yeah. get. It's usually on Discogs, and I may have seen one. I just couldn't remember if I did or not. I think I've got one copy at home. I've got a couple cassette copies. I've got a couple cassette copies of the singles. Yes. Like we we did Let Go and No Tattoos and License to Love on cassette singles. I can't believe that was a thing, but... Um, the funny thing, uh, um, my brother Mike did the artwork for um, the No Tattoos uh, cassette single, and the cover said, this is the song your mother warned you about. <laughs> That's cool. Like I re- yes, and I remember, like I said, I bought the cassette single initially of License to Love, and I believe Moonbeam was the... B side, the flip side on it. Uh, yeah, you could be right on it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you could be absolutely right on it. So I was just watching footage on YouTube. I, I looked up Andy Curran on YouTube, and there was a segment on the Power Hour with the late Dan Gallagher. Great interview, oh. pretty funny actually. You doing your best Nigel Tufnell accent, which was great. <laughs> yeah, and I remember initially seeing that, and I had totally forgotten about it. And the explanation of how to work the holes into your jeans with a yeah. piece of sandpaper and spit. Yeah. And I remember I remember us back in the day, actually, I had watched that and told my buddy, same guy with the jean jacket, I was like, we got to try this and see if it actually works. And, and I'm pretty sure it did, but I don't know it if it worked for you guys, right? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, yeah, Dan Gallagher, God bless him. Like, I met Dan... Um, from doing a couple of interviews at, at Much Music, and we hit it off and got off. Got we just got 
connected like a house on fire. The two of us um, ended up being inseparable friends, and we put together a little fun band called Dan Gallagher's Beat Heathens, and we used to play up in Collingwood. His parents owned this this club up in Collingwood so cool. um, called the Mountain View, and we would do stuff like um, you know some some Van Morrison and Rolling Stones and and the Kinks and um, you know Louis Louis and Wild Thing and things like that. It was just a fun band, right? But so the, the the thing that I'd like to mention about Dan Gallagher, he was such a talented guy. He had so much charisma. And when we had our little side project going, he was he said to me, oh, you know what, Andy, we gotta record an album. And I was like, dude, we don't have, we're we're a cover band. We don't what do you mean we gotta record now? Because well, I guess we better start writing some original material. And I was like, I guess we do, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't at the top of my list, let's put it that way, because I was I was in my own band. I was touring. And he was relentless. He would call me up. Have you written our song yet? Have you got the song going? What's going on? And I, I had a little studio at, at that time, too. And a couple of times he would call me and say, what are you working on in the background? Is that our song? And so finally, honestly, I mean this respectfully because he's listening to us upstairs. I was like, oh, my God, I got to write a song and get Dan Gallagher off my back. I got to give him something. He's driving me freaking nuts here, right? So this one day he calls me and he says, is that the song? I said, yes, it is. And he goes, I'm coming over to get it. I'm coming over to get it. So I had I burned him a CD and I gave him this piece of music and I handed it to him and off he went in his Jeep. I can still picture him driving away in a convertible Jeep, slammed the, the CD into his car player and he's got it cranked. The next day he calls me up, he goes, I've written lyrics for it. And I was like, okay, thanks for telling me that, Dan, gotta go. Then the next day... And then the next day, I've got more stuff for it. I've finished the song. And I'm like, cool. So he comes over to my house one day and he says, will you record me singing it? I said, no problem. So I, I sat him down, put some headphones, put a mic in front of him. And doesn't he sing Dig in a Hole? So he's written Dig in a Hole. And it's, and it's not really finished, right? And, um, and he was just so happy. Like it was, if I remember, it was an intro, a verse, a chorus, a second verse and a, and a second chorus, and then the song and then the song stopped. And I said, "Well, Dan, it's not finished. We got to finish the song." So he ended up taking that song and playing it for Gordy Johnson, aka Big Sugar. Yeah. And Big Sugar fell in love with the song, wrote that guitar riff that goes down tacked it on to the end of what Dan and I wrote. And and digging a hole ended up being one of Gordy Johnson's biggest hits. But that song was supposed to be for Dan Gallagher and Andy Curran's Beat Heathen. That is insane. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a killer song, too. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I miss him dearly. His brother Brett's a friend of mine. I, got, I became friends with the rest of his family. But, man, and that was a funny segment. And and we did another segment together where he he would randomly call me up and go say, oh, dude, somebody just canceled an interview for me on, on much music. Would you come down to the, um, you know, the Harborfront uh, Hilton in an hour? And I'd be like, yeah, okay. He goes, you got to fill in for me, man. This guy canceled. So I go, I go to the Harborfront Hilton and he's in this hotel room. And I said, so what are we doing? 
He said, we're staging a love-in. You're going to get in bed with me, and we're not leaving the bed like John and Yoko did until something. He made it up, right? So there's another interview somewhere of Dan and I in bed together, um, co-hosting the Power Hour or something. But he'd always come up with these stupid ideas. He's hilarious, man. Yeah, he's the best. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. He was was so much fun. Well, the, the best of that other segment was at the end. So you're talking about vintage guitar. There's a Rickenbacker and a Dan Electro bass. And out, yeah. out, out comes these two very attractive women from the back room carrying the guitars. And I just laugh to myself because I'm thinking, geez, man, this this would not happen today because somebody would probably be affected. And I'm yeah. thinking, but it was just it was just that kind of old school like Benny Hill type of humor. It was just all in fun, but it was so good. Well, Dan and Dan wrote that. He said, he said to me. I want to come down. I want to interview you guys. You'll play a couple of songs and we'll talk about life in general. But he said, you know, every time I come to your shows, Andy, there are some extremely good looking women there. Extremely good looking. And, and I said, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, you were absolutely right. He said, do you know any of them that might be interested in, in having fun with us? And maybe we can ask them to pretend to be your guitar roadies so that, you know, somebody watching the Power Hour will think, oh, my God. Andy Curran's guitar roadies are these these you know beautiful girls. So I so we put we put a couple calls out and instantly two of them said no problem we'll pretend to be. I said what do we have to do? I said literally you just have to come out and hand us do like a guitar change like you're part of our road crew. But Dan wrote that piece himself. It was so good. Yeah, but I just laughed because I know you probably couldn't get away with that today. <laughs> no, I don't think so. That was that. That was then. This is now. It might be. Um, it might be deemed as his final tap. Guys say, um, "Well, what's wrong with being sexy as as opposed to sexist?" Right? Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. What was what was the show that Dan, the the game show that I can't remember the name of it, Dan? That was called Test Pattern. Test, Test Pattern. Pattern. Yeah. Yeah. That was a crazy show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dan, Dan was the host of that, and he, uh, he just he uh, constantly was a source of, of creativity and ideas. We had a blast. We played a lot of shows, um, drank a lot of beer together, and um, had a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I miss him dearly. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So getting back to License to Love, uh, man, that song, I mean, more or less ruled the airways in the summer in 1990 on Canadian radio. To this day, like I said, it still sounds fresh to me. It's such a great driving song. Did you think it would become the hit that it became? Um, no, not at all. I, I got to be honest with you. So it was interesting. In that process that I told you about where, where Kim was supposed to produce the record, um, I also had met a fellow by the name of Phil Brown in L.A., and Phil was an accomplished guitar player, producer, and we had co-written some songs together. So I kind of had this tw- um, this sort of 12-bar blues type of a riff, which was Licensed to Love, and I worked with Phil, and Phil took it left to center and, and kind of changed it into the way it became. So Phil, Phil Brown um, was a big part of why that song turned out the way it did but um i think about a couple of the other songs that were on the radio at that time and people compared it to um robert palmer's addicted to love or she ain't pretty and she just looks that way it's kind of 
Yeah, it's kind of like one of those songs where the band stops and boom, all you need is a license to love or boom, she ain't pretty, she just looks that way. Like, you know, so it it was kind of, you know, it just seemed to work and Don Allen um, did a a really good, fun video for it. And it was just timing, man. Like the, the, the timing seemed right for that song. I, I mean, like, I remember, like I said, for the third time, I, I bought the single because I loved the song so much. I just couldn't. I think I played the crap out of that original single. I think I just kept playing it over and over again. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, I'm on the record, I think, you know, my favorite uh, song might be Whiskey and the Devil and maybe Nickels and Dimes. There's yeah. something about those two songs. Um Moonbeam is kind of cool. I co-wrote some lyrics with my my older brother Mike on that, but it was nice and it was liberating uh, to be um, doing that solo record because I I could kind of work with whoever the hell I wanted to and wasn't sort of, um, with all due respect to the boys and Cody, you know, when you're in a band, it's just like, okay, here's your circle. And all of a sudden I cast the net out pretty wide on that, on that record and worked with a bunch of really great people. Um, Alex Kane played guitar on it. He was in a band called LSD, Life, Sex and Death. He's in Um, Enough now. Yeah, and um, I keep in touch with him. Um, Stan Pavlides, who played in a great band in Buffalo, rips and solos on it. The original guitar player of uh, Coney Hatch by the name a guy by the name of Tim Broyd played some slide guitar on that record. So it was it was really fun for me to to be able to just put an all call out and, and work with some of my old friends on that one. You know? Yeah. And it, yep. I mean, getting to know tattoos is funny because me for some reason i've stayed in free and and i always every time there's been times where i've actually been in a tattoo place and it just never happened it's just i couldn't find the the tattoo i wanted and i i think it just wasn't meant to be and and for some reason that those lines no tattoos gotta stay cool my mama never raised a fool i think it always resonated to me yeah but at that time i mean i was listening to motley and guns back then and they had tattoos and but it just i just could never never bring myself to do it yeah well you know in a lot of my lyrics uh, um, I try not to take myself too seriously and a lot of it is tongue-in-cheek and those words were words from my parents my if I said to my mom and my, my mom and dad um, but born up and raised in England and very proper and I would say yeah I want to get a, a, a tattoo and my mom would say you're a bloody fool don't you, <laughs> you know and and raised as a Roman Catholic you know at time, there was all this stuff about it's the devil's ink and it's a lot of imagery and stuff and I just I just had some fun with it and um, you know shortly thereafter got a tattoo and probably got about 10 or 15 more I've, I've yeah. kind of slowed down yeah. the, the most amount of tattoos I have is on my ankle and they're all chicago blackhawk related so that'll that'll take it into a different direction oh, but i mean but that's close to your heart that's like that's a, yeah. the thing that a tattoo's supposed to yeah. be for me it was like it wasn't i wasn't adverse to it i just couldn't find the one that was you know the right thing for me so yeah well you know here, here's what i will say if i wish i had a charger in my car uh, for the lighter because i'd plug it in and we could continue because yeah. i only got to to the solo record but should you want to continue yeah i'm happy to jump on and do a part two with you and, yeah. and if there's other stuff but but i'm down to uh three percent tyson i'm worried that, that the plug's going to be pulled yeah, on us no, that's cool andy well uh i will uh I'll email you and we'll uh, we'll figure out the rest. I still I'm sorry I have so many questions. 
<laughs> no, dude, it's it's awesome. All your questions are great, and um, and like I said, if you want to cut it up into part two and go, okay, we got to 1992, and now I want to hear about Soho and Leisure World and Drunk Which Plan and all that. Yeah, yeah. So Which we can a hundred percent, bro. If you want to do a part two, okay. I'd be happy to do it. And you just tell me when. But uh, your questions were great, and. And, you know, I'd like to talk about those records in Caramel because I did go to a a lot of trouble to put them up on uh, recently on on Spotify and and Amazon and Apple. So it'd be cool to talk about that because a lot of work went into getting them dusted off out of my archives and and so the world can hear them. And you know what's ironic is the fact my Soho 69 copy is from Germany. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's okay. Keep that question because there's a good story behind that. All right. Okay. About the ger- about the German edition because okay. you'll uh, it, it's a funny story. But okay. no, bro. You you tell me and and I'm happy to do part two with you. And, and I really uh, thank you for your time and having me on. Um, it was a blast. You had some great questions and awesome T-shirt too. And Thanks. do yourself do yourself a favor. Plug for Cheap Trick. Go and listen to their new record. They have a, a new single out and it is. It is so good, man. I'm going to check that out. Okay, Andy, well, we'll do part two, and I will talk to you soon. Yeah, keep me posted, bro. Happy to jump on again, and thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. Have a good night. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, she